If you have a Bible, please open up to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be finishing our series this morning. Um, one other uh, neat little point before, uh, as we speak of missionaries going around the world, uh, we've been praying for the Barsh family, and uh, Andrew is back with us, and Tobias is having his first Sunday in church. So if uh, there's the Bar- wave the Barsh family, and uh, there's Tobias over there, so welcome, and we look forward to getting to know this precious new addition to such a precious family. Well, one of the things that just amazes me about the book of Jonah, and it's a major theme that often goes unmentioned, but it is probably the major theme of the book, is just how many times in only four short chapters you see God at work in this book. And some that are clear to see, some that are not clearly seen, but the reader is able to see, and it should be clear to the firsthand participants, but somehow many of them go unnoticed. I mean, just stop and think for a moment. I just listed a few, and I could have listed so many more of all the ways that God is at work in just three chapters so far. God gives a clear, supernatural, prophetic calling to Jonah. God demonstrates that he is Lord over the oceans and Lord over the weather. God is able to signal out Jonah for his sin in a way that makes him unable to run from it and continue to be quiet about it. God is able to show a typology of Jesus by saving the sailors from Jonah's sin. God shows that he's not only able to stir up cataclysmic weather, but as soon as God says, peace, be still. He's able to calm the weather. God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah, thereby saving him from his own sin and giving him the opportunity to fight another day. He kept Jonah alive in the midst of his sin and preserved him. And that's one of the ones that I probably look back on with the greatest gratitude. I think of all of the times that I could have died in my sin before coming to Jesus, but because of beautiful doctrines such as irresistible grace, he would not let me go and he would not let me depart from this world until he grabbed me and saved me. And we see that in Jonah. We see God bringing Jonah's hard heart to repentance. And out of all the things that you see in the book of Jonah, that might be the greatest work in the entire book, the ability to bring a man's heart to repentance. Because think about it, calming the seas, appointing a fish, causing a storm, all God had to do was speak, or that's anthropomorphic, maybe even just think, and those things took place. But to bring a human heart to repentance cost him the death of his own son. God's able to spew Jonah out where he was supposed to have gone anyway. God's able to bring an entire empire to repentance. And in the irony of ironies, doesn't it seem as if it was easier for God to bring the entire pagan empire to repentance more easily than Jonah's one singular stubborn heart? I could continue to go on, but perhaps the most amazing part of this book and the hardest to believe, people always get hung up on the fish. 
Was this a real fish? This, yes, it was. Um, we, we believe that the Bible is authentically the Word of God. That This is not a parable. This is not an allegory. This was a real fish. But that's not even the hardest thing to believe in the book. The hardest thing to believe is that God was doing all of these amazing things as clear as the nose on your face, yet Jonah somehow missed it the entire time. And it made me think of a couple of things. Is this a common thing? For God to be doing spectacular things right in front of you and to be able to completely miss it. Think about that reality for a second. That reality had me quaking in my boots. Is this common that God would be at work in such amazing ways like we see here in Jonah, yet you could completely be oblivious to what's taking place. More personally, it made me wonder, is it possible that I could be like Jonah? And that I could be missing God doing tremendous and wonderful things right in my midst, and I'm completely missing it. And um, because you could take the hippie out of the man, but you can't take the man out of the hippie, it made me think of my one of my favorite songs, if not my favorite song of all time, a song called Ballad of a Thin Man by Bob Dylan. No, it's not a Christian song. It wasn't on his three really bad Christian albums. It was on his good albums. Um, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it tells the story of a man named Mr. Jones who is constantly surrounded by these paradigm-shifting, culture-shifting, monumental things going around him, and something unique seems to be taking place every time he goes into a different location, yet he never seems to be able to be in on whatever's going on. Much like the book of Jonah, the main character seems to be a part of a story where everybody who's looking on is able to understand that there is something so much bigger happening than what you're able to see in the moment, aside from the main character of the story. And in the song, each stanza would tell a different scenario to share how Mr. Jones was missing it and unable to see what others are seeing. And each of the ironic lyrics ends with, and you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones was a purposefully generic name. They could have chosen Mr. Smith, and it would have worked for those purposes. But Mr. Jones, they picked a generic name because it was supposed to be representative of every man who is in the presence of something happening, yet somehow is completely missing it. And in the same way, Jonah has stood for 3,000 years as a picture of something is happening. God is doing something really big. There's something supernatural and there's something outstanding taking place. God's doing something amazing right in front of your very eyes, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jonah? Well, we're going to be looking at a really simple but very profound reality as we close up the book, is sometimes God is at work in really big ways. And based on the posture of our heart, He can be performing miracles in front of our very eyes, and we can be oblivious to it, and we can totally miss it. And a message that I believe is really timely for the season, we're going to be seeing that the key to unlocking the ability to see the God of the universe 
at work right around you and in you is sometimes as simple as cultivating a heart of gratitude. We're also going to see the other side of that coin that the easiest way to miss God doing something really profound right around you and in you and to be completely missing out is to be falling into a pit of lack of gratitude. So may we glean from this so that it could not be said of us, you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Uh, So as the passage starts out, I'm going to take you actually back to the final verse of chapter 3. You have a few seemingly incongruent realities taking place at the same time. God is at work doing something amazing, but Jonah is for some reason and somehow upset about that. Look at verse 10. And it says, And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. And God at work in amazing ways, yet Jonah thinks he has the right to be upset about it. What, what an amazing but insane statement. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was somebody who was set apart by God to be a mouthpiece for God, and God was at work in ways that would be greater than anything that I could possibly imagine. I'm going to break that down in a little bit as we break down verse 10. Yet somehow Jonah's conclusion is that he is displeased. We're going to see at the end of the chapter that God does something so massive. Wrap your minds around this. He does something so massive that it would be the equivalent of waking up tomorrow and knowing that every single person in Tom's River and Brick Township was saved overnight. Think about that for a moment. Think about what a godless part of this world that we live in. An area where statistically, roughly only about 2.7% of people identify with an evangelical profession of faith in the gospel. An area that is famously hard for the hardness of their soil. I remember when I was moving back from Colorado after helping planting churches out there and telling people that I was going to come to New Jersey and they didn't know that I had a history of being from New Jersey. It was almost like a Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? Like people were astounded. Why would you leave this little slice of heaven on earth to go to New Jersey? And the answer was obvious, right? Pork roll. They don't have have pork roll in Colorado. I hate when people try to compare it to Scrapple. That's just a a lie. Um, I just, I love the people of New Jersey. That's, That's where God was calling me. But make no, don't be deluded. The soil here is uncommonly hard soil to till. We live in an area that statistically has about as low of a percentage of people with an evangelical profession of faith in the gospel as post-Christian European nations. Imagine all of that changing in an instant overnight and Tom's River being known as the center of revival and the epicenter of what God was doing in this world. Let it be, right? Can I, can I get an amen uh, on that? Um, well, imagine seeing all of that happen in your own lifetime and it having no impact or even worse, a negative impact 
on your heart. So let's back up for a moment and look at God at work. Again in verse 10. When God saw what they did, meaning the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Daniel did a fantastic job setting up the context for this passage last week, so I need not go too deep for it, but just to recap for a minute, God raised up a messenger to tell them that there was impending doom if they didn't repent. God caused their hearts to be repentant and receptive to the message. Make no mistake about it, that takes a Godward move. If you don't believe me, if you don't think that it takes God to bring a heart to repentance and that human beings can just bring their own hearts to repentance, go test out your own theology. Go leave here and go stand in the most crowded area and just go start preaching. I mean, if that's really your theology, be consistent with your theology. Well, even if you believe God brings hearts to repentance, try it anyway. It might be fun. God brought them not only to receptivity, but repentance. And the repentance was genuine, according to verse 10, because they actually turned from their evil. And the rest of verse 10 talks about how God changed his mind on what he was planning on doing. Wrap your minds around that statement theologically. That the all-knowing one, who knew the outcome ahead of time, who knew how this was going to go, still in some way, it says, changed his mind about what he was going to do. Um, that makes my Calvinistic leanings a little uncomfortable. But in God making people such as me uncomfortable, he changed the entire fate of a nation. So, kind of a tangent but I'm curious, do you ever pray big like this? This is something I really want you to ask your heart because it's, it's so biblical. I could give you passage after passage. Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will give of the nations as your inheritance. Joel chapter 1, let the priests and the ministers wail before the altar because the sacrifice of your God is being withheld. Do you ever pray big like that? Like those big biblical change the fate of a nation kind of prayers. God, bring us the revival that we need. God, bring this nation to repentance. God, please change the fate of our nation. Do you take the time to pray something like that before you take the time to just rush to posting something witty on social media about how much you can't stand our nation? In the very least, God, change my city. Change my school. Change my family. I don't know how many of you come from families where you're a first-generation Christian. I didn't grow up Christian. My parents got saved when I was in high school. But doesn't it just warm your heart to see a family like the Terranovas being second-generation missionaries, now sending out the next generation of missionaries? And then maybe someday, Dave and Nicole are sending out another generation of missionaries. And that's the kind of stuff you're asking for when you say, change the fate and direction of my family. Well, imagine praying that big and God actually showing up and doing it. He can, you know. Do you believe that you can pray that big and actually change the impact of kingdoms, kings, nations, the fates of millions on your knees? Do you really believe that? Because it's, it's all through Scripture, folks. 
I'm not making it up. From Genesis all the way until Revelation, it is there over and over and over. But check out Jonah's heart about the whole situation. Look at verse 1. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? Like Jonah is angry with God for being God. Jonah is upset with God being merciful and gracious, which we're going to see more about in a few verses, where Jonah actually says that it's because of God being gracious and merciful that he's currently upset. I mean, just think about the statement that God being God made Jonah angry. And Jonah somehow thought that he was entitled to be able to be angry about it. If you want to see God's immeasurable patience and mercy, just read back through verse 1 really, really slowly and allow yourself to meditate on every single word in it as you try to wrap your mind around it. The very fact that it says God at work displeased Jonah and he was very angry and God didn't come back with a Excuse me? Who do you think you are, boy? I mean, I know that that's the way my parental instincts would rise up. You think that you get the right to be displeased here? You think you even get the right to take it so far as to be angry about this? Who do you think you are, you little punk? That's what I would probably say about it. Yet God doesn't deal with Jonah like that at all, does he? He is slow and patient and kind and fatherly and gracious, just like he was to the Ninevites. But verse 1 kind of sets the main idea for the rest of the chapter, and in doing so, the rest of the book. Because of Jonah's attitude, he is missing the beauty and the wonder of being able to see God at work. What a tragedy. This guy had front row box seats to one of the greatest revivals in human history, Yet because Jonah would rather throw a tantrum than deepen his theology of the Lord's sovereign grace, most of it's completely lost on Jonah. It really is tragic when you think about it. And not only does Jonah seem to be missing it, he's actually missing it to the point where he thinks that he should be able to argue his case before God. Look at verses 2-4. through four. It says, Then he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better that I would die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So let's look at Jonah's argument with God. First of all, let me point out the fact that verse 2 starts off by saying, and Jonah prayed to the Lord. This prayer is kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? This isn't exactly enter his gates with thanksgiving in your hearts and enter his courts with praise. This is the day that the Lord has made, so I shall rejoice and be glad in it kind of prayers, is it? This isn't exactly the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication kind of model that you learn to pray. His prayer is pretty blasphemous when you really think about it. But you can't change the fact that God the Holy Spirit 
actually refers to this as prayer. There's no hidden tricks going on. There's no secret Hebrew here. The word for prayer here is the same word for prayer that's normative throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. It's not the most beautiful prayer. It's not the most theologically sound prayer, but God the Spirit is the one who calls it a prayer, which does not really fit into my theological framework for prayer, but it does fit into something that I often say about God. God seems to be a whole lot more okay with messy than his people are. God is no stained glass deity, folks. He's the Savior who got down on our level and became like us in every way but without sin and came and ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners to the point where they called him a friend of sinners, a drunk, and a glutton because he identified with them so much. And his heart is so big that he's even able to engage us when our hearts are way off, which is pretty awesome when you think about it. So let's look at the rest of Jonah's prayer. And uh, let's see Jonah's argument, actually, in the form of prayer. Look at the rest of verse 2 again. It says, And he prayed, O Lord, is this not what I said to you when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah basically is trying to give God and I told you so in this passage. See? I told you! I knew it! I knew you'd end up being gracious! <laughs> it's so nuts, right? Isn't this exactly what I told you that you were going to do when I was chilling back in my crib in Israel and I told you why I didn't want to go to begin with? I wonder how Jonah thought that this argument was going to work out for him. I mean, you don't really ever win an I told you so battle with someone who knows everything. I can't even win one with my wife. And you think you're going to win one with God? Like, that's, that's a head scratcher. And then he tells them, this is why I didn't want to go to begin with and why I tried to run to Tarshish. He's talking to God like a couple that are arguing on their way home from Thanksgiving dinner and saying, I knew that if we went to the in-laws, it was going to end up like this. That's why I told you I didn't want to go to the in-laws to begin with. And that's why we're spending Thanksgiving without... They didn't say that about you, Mom. I, I promise. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of an analogy that would come close to home. Uh, it's almost like he's using God's goodness against him and at the same time trying to use as a defense why he should have been allowed to be a coward and flee to Tarshish. But this is God that we're talking about. These arguments fall apart. They don't hold water. It reminds me of this time when I used to meet with this guy that was ducking out on paying his taxes for 20 years. And it began to impact his life in some significant ways. When you're a ghost and you haven't shown up in the IRS's system, you know the statement that there's two things that are certain in life, right? Taxes and taxes. So you, you, can't, you can't just do that. So myself and some of the other pastors at the church that I was working at kept telling the guy, you have to contact the IRS and you have to make this right. And when he did, you'll never guess what they told him. They said, you have to pay your taxes. <laughs> and I remember him coming back and being so irate 
like we see here with Jonah. See, I told you if I connected with the IRS that they were just going to try to make me pay them what I owe them. It was like a trip to Bizarro land, man. Like I, I had no box to be able to like really wrap this up in. And Jonah's argument is like that same trip to Bizarro land here. He's basically saying, see, I told you that you would be God and you always end up being God in situations like this. So why do you have to be so God all the time? That's why I should have just been justified in sitting in my disobedience when I tried to do the whole Tarshish thing. Why didn't you just let that go? And then he reminds God in his character in a way that seems as if he is blasphemously trying to hold God's character against him. He's saying, look, God, we both knew that you were going to end up doing what was upright. And we both knew that you were going to end up being gracious. We both knew you were going to end up being compassionate and slow to anger, as if these things are an indictment against God. But Jonah's missing it. God is doing something really, really big. And Jonah realizes that. That's the crazy part. He's missing it even though he knows it. He's saying, I knew you were going to end up being gracious because you are. I knew you'd be merciful because you are. I knew that you would end up stopping angry with them because you're slow to anger and you're patient because you are. And he still misses it. Perhaps the most fascinating work in the whole book is the first word in verse 3, though. Check it out. If you circle things in your Bibles, this is a big word in this text. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to live, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'm talking about the word therefore, obviously. You know the saying that when you see a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for and what it's being used for. So Jonah uses the term therefore to make an argument that goes something like this if you try to unpack what verse 3 is saying. Since you're all of those attributes that I just named in verse 2, since you're slow to anger and gracious and compassionate and slow and relenting of disaster, therefore, just kill me and get it over with. <laughs> right? It doesn't compute, does it? What kind of logic is that? When you hinge the passage on the term therefore, you're able to see just how far off Jonah's heart really is. If you want a parallel story, this is just like the older brother's reaction in the parable of the prodigal son. Since you're gracious and compassionate and you're saving the undeserving little brother, when we both knew that I was the one that deserved to be saved, I was the one that deserved the fatted calf, I was the one that deserved the ring, where's my party? I want a golden goose. Give it to me now. He has his little Veruca Salt moment, right? Therefore, since you do all these things, just take my life. Because it's better for me to die than to live on in this world that's full of your grace and mercy and compassion. Again, God is doing something huge. And Jonah, by his own admission, I'm not even reading anything into the text. By his own admission, he's missing it. And I love, love, love God's answer in verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I know that God doesn't troll people. 
This seems like trolling right here. If you look at the various translations, this is interpreted in as many different Bibles as you guys have out there is as many different translations as you're going to see because this is not a very normal phrase in Hebrew. It's a very unique statement. It's like God saying, Jonah, this attitude thing does not look good on you. Um, Are you sure that this is the direction that you want to take? Do you really think that this is going to go well for you, Jonah? I told you a few weeks ago that I love the book of Jonah because I am able to see just how true it is to the realities of the human heart, to the realities of my own heart. We might not argue with him verbally like you see here in chapter 4, although I have. I don't know if anybody else has ever been in that place. If you want to read an interesting prayer life, read the prayer life of Martin Luther. He was famous for the shouting matches that he would get into with the Lord. And it always seemed to end up softening his heart, doing the opposite of what you see here and bringing him to this sweet place of repentance. How often have we taken a heart posture of, God, this was not the way that you were supposed to do it. This isn't the way that it was supposed to work out. This wasn't the trajectory that my life was supposed to be on. You were not supposed to allow this to happen. God, you're so big, and if you're so sovereign, why couldn't you have showed up and stopped this thing from happening? God, I never thought that by this age that my life would look like this. I thought that you said you would never give me more than I can handle. And by the way, God never said that. If you... um, There's this neat little book called um, 101 Things That People Say the Bible Says That God Never Actually Said. Something, And this was like number three. You know the old God will never give you more than you can handle? It's funny because the only thing that he says that's similar is 2 Corinthians 1.8 where Paul actually says the very opposite. He says that you gave me more than I could handle. (laughs) So... Uh, For those of you that say, and the Bible says, God will never give you more than you can handle, take a look at his son as he prayed in the garden. And why should we be different? But when you allow unbiblical colloquialisms to go unchecked, we can convince ourselves to check this out. God's the one who's missing it. And it's not us. Getting so focused on what God is not doing or what God was supposed to be doing that we're completely oblivious to what God is doing. And at the heart of that attitude, you will always find a lack of gratitude for what God is up to, resulting in disappointment with God for not doing what we felt that God should be up to. Isn't that exactly what's going on here in this text? God is not living up to Jonah's plan for Jonah's life. It's like the old Bill Bright track. I have a wonderful plan for my life, and God should just rubber stamp it and bless it. No, he didn't say that, right? It's God has a wonderful plan for your life, and it's his plan. And the ingratitude is the cement that the poor attitude of his heart begins to quick set and dry. And not only does lack of gratitude cause him to miss what God was doing for others, he's even oblivious of what God is doing for him. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, And Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. 
and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, a.k.a. sitting there hoping that it would be destroyed. The Lord God appointed a plant to come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. And when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he said, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So he's concerned about what God is doing in others, not lining up with what he thought that God should be doing so much to the fact that he's completely oblivious to what God is doing in him. He's concerned more about his momentary discomfort than the eternal discomfort that the Assyrians were going to be facing. I'm going to come back to that as we close, but put a pin in that thought. Yet this whole time, God is just showering him with buckets and buckets of grace. Even in the midst of his tantrum, God is still showering him with grace, and he can't see it. Even as he's stomping his feet like a toddler, God is causing this tree to rise up, and he's feeding him and meeting his needs. But since Jonah was so oblivious to what was going on in the spiritual realm, God had to hit him where he would notice in the physical realm, and take away his tangible comforts. And just a quick tangent on that. Sometimes we can be so oblivious to what God is up to that we don't notice until he hits you in the wallet. And like Jonah, that seems to get people's attention, even though Jonah was a total spaz up until this point. So to bring this book to a conclusion... People who are not cultivating gratitude for what God is doing in their lives end up not only missing what God is doing in their lives, but also becoming too selfish to see what God is doing in others' lives and miss out in the need to see God working in others' lives. It's a pretty simple reality, follow the syllogism, that a lack of gratitude leads you to a lack of looking upward. So you spend your time focusing inward, which closes you off to seeing or appreciating God's work outward, making us oblivious to God's bigger picture because we're so focused on ourselves. Look with me at the final verses of our text in verses 8 through 10. Do you do well to be angry? But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Can't imagine what a weenie he sounded like when he said that. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and as much their cattle? So God wanted to change the fate of a nation 
but Jonah couldn't see it. And even as God's explaining to him, he still can't see it because he can't get over his disappointment with God. I am so fascinated by Jonah the missionary because I wonder how many are blind to the fact that God wants to reach those who have not heard because they're so focused on their own stuff to the point where they can't imagine getting out of their own stuff for five minutes to be able to invest in the lives of others. And as I've said this before, this world is as close to hell as the believer will ever experience. And it is as close to glory as the unbeliever will ever experience. So Jonah was so keyed up on perfecting his own little slice of earthly heaven that he was calloused and uncaring of the fate of those who were around him. I can't help but wonder if this is the biggest thing that keeps God's people from being the missionary people that God called his people to be. People are so mired in disappointments of day-to-day life that they're closed to the reality that the people around you face the same disappointments that you're facing. But they don't get to spend eternity with Jesus when this whole thing that James says is a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. They don't have that luxury. The disappointments that they face in this life are the closest thing to heaven that they are ever going to experience without hope of the gospel. And that's where Jonah's heart was. And I wonder if Jonah... If God was saying something through Jonah to the church, people can be focused on putting manure around their little shade tree and trying to prop up this shriveled little plant that they miss the 120,000 people around them that don't know their left from their right. Look, as hot as Jonah was without the shade tree, I'm going to break it to you, hell's hotter. I'm just going to be frank. Uh, It's hard to feel all that much mercy that Jonah didn't have his shade hat when he felt no mercy on those who were going to be spending eternity in the conscience torments of hell. All he could think about was his precious little creature comfort. In the same way, Christians can get so wrapped up in their trials to -to day-to-day life that they miss the fact that people who have those same trials are enduring those trials but without the hope of a Savior. People need to stop focusing so much on evaporating comforts to the point where they miss the fact that there is a world out there in need of Jesus. You know what just crushed me about this text? It was one of the first texts that I preached in moving back to New Jersey. You know what the population of Tom's River is? 120,000. I know that God didn't do that, that I'm just playing with numbers there, but it, it still just hits my heart. And the way to awaken our hearts to this reality is to awaken our hearts for gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for you in the gospel. When you really realize that there is no one less deserving of grace than I. There is no one less deserving of glory than I. That the only thing that I've earned is a one-way ticket to destruction and hell. And it's only by God's grace that I'm headed somewhere else that really begins to cultivate a spirit of gratitude that rises up in you, doesn't it? 
And a little tangent before we close, I'm just about to bring this to an end, but everybody always wants to know what's up with the saving of the cattle, so I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's like the weird little thing at the end of Jonah, and even as I was approaching this chapter, I I could point to you guys, there was like 20 of you that are like, what are you going to do with the God saving the cattle thing? So... I'm going to give you my, my best stab at it before I give you guys some application. First, if God was to save the people and not save the cattle, he would have saved them from destruction, but he wouldn't have been meeting their day-to-day needs. God doesn't always supply our wants, but he does meet our needs. Second, very simply, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far is God's ways above our ways. So if he wants to save the cattle from destruction, he's God. He gets to. And third, it may appear wasteful, but I'm really happy that it's in there because I think that sometimes people struggle with God being God, but it appearing wasteful in our own carnal understanding. Like, why did you have to have this thing go wrong with my car, God? I would have pretended like I would have tithed that money if you didn't make my engine blow. (laughs) That cracked me up sometimes. Um, uh, Why why did we have to have this plumbing issue? Why did the washer and dryer have to go? Why did I have this happen because it derailed the pattern that I had for me? That appeared wasteful. Well, in all of the things that seem as if God is doing something wasteful, you see that God cares for your needs more intimately than you could even understand to the point where he's doing something just so cool that we can't even really wrap our minds around and the key to seeing it is cultivating the eyes of gratitude so this book is dripping with application and i want to close with some application from throughout the book people wonder how this guy could be the same jonah from that beautiful prayer in chapter two and how this guy in chapter four can be the same guy and i just want to tell you it's really not that hard to figure it out he started off on grateful footing in chapter 2. He's saying things like, again, I just want to be able to go and bring my sacrifice into the temple of the Lord and to be able to enjoy Him in the midst of His holy temple. But lack of gratitude began to erode as he stopped dealing with the junk in his heart and stopped giving thanks. It brought him here to the point you see in this chapter. He's the same person, but he's not the same person. I want to just speak to the hearts of any of you who maybe you've known Jesus for a long time and you remember a time when a fresh dose of conviction of sin or you couldn't wait to be able to come and worship the Lord in the midst of His saints. You couldn't help but sense what God was doing in your life in a real and tangible way. You're the same person But maybe there's somebody here that though you're the same person, you're not the same person. And by now, he's pretty oblivious to God at work when there was a time when joining God in his work was his greatest joy. At the heart of it, it was ingratitude that caused Jonah to miss it. Lack of gratitude for God delivering a nation. Lack of gratitude in what God did in saving him. Often, 
Lack of gratitude is preceded by forgetting what God has done in delivering us. I mean, Jonah couldn't appreciate what God did in saving Nineveh because God was, Jonah was completely oblivious to what God did in saving Jonah. Those who are forgiven much were intended to love much. Jonah seems to forget that he's the guy that was flailing in the ocean and had to be swallowed by a fish. And he seems pretty oblivious to the fact that he is just not loving all that much either. So not only does he forget that he's been forgiving much, he doesn't remember that he's loved much or remember to love much, causing him to confuse his heart with God's and not able to understand that God loves much as well. But it's not unique to Jonah. Ingratitude can cause us all to not see it as well. So God, not being at work the way that we should expect, can cause us to miss it because God's not fitting into our box. And God wasn't all that concerned with filling Jonah's box, was he? God exploded that box in every single chapter of this book, which is why I think we all enjoy the book of Jonah. Sometimes God's ways do not line up with what we think that they should be. And that's okay, folks. When we're cultivating gratitude, we're able to see God in a fresh way. And on the flip side of that, if you are constantly complaining or wishing that God was doing something different, you will be missing out on what God is doing right in front of you. If you are here and you have developed a spirit of whiny complaining, I'm telling you, it's not that you might be, you will be missing out on what God is doing right in front of you. If you're in a rut of complaining, I would just encourage you, search your heart and see if, like Jonah, you're fighting against the portrait of God that you've painted in your life, and you're not actually fighting against God himself, because you're not happy that God's not lining up with your portrait of him. Gratitude gives us the eyes to see it. We're able to see what's happening and have a front row seat to what God is doing when we cultivate a spirit of gratitude. So as we prepare to leave here, let me encourage you, slow down. That's what the Sabbath was supposed to be made for. So that we would slow down. Stop rushing. Rest. And be able to see that God is at work around you. We need only open our eyes. And as you grow in gratitude for the fact that you are the one most in need of the gospel, you'll be able to see and partake in God's work in the lives of others. Jesus, thank you so much that you are so gracious with us and so patient with us. And even when we don't get it, you continue to just through your softness and patience and steadfast love, remind us of what a good and gracious God you are. I pray that one of those reminders now would be the table as we partake of communion and remember your body broken for us and your blood poured out for the remission of our sins. And this we ask in Jesus' name.